Hello and welcome back to part two of our 2006 Golden Balls draft recap. In part one, we went through the first five rounds and talked about 21 famous figures from the 2006 World Cup. And today we have another 27 names to go. Now, certainly some of these names are still massive players, including one right near the top of the sixth round that we're going to talk about. But as we go deeper and deeper into the draft, you will see some players that are a little bit less heralded, some stories that you might not be as familiar with. Um, and again, some names that you haven't heard, including one name that I didn't even remember, or could I tell you anything about that player before I kind of looked into it today. So we don't want to waste any time. Let's jump right into round six of our review of the 2006 World Cup Golden Balls draft. The second half of the draft started with Gord taking Italian forward Alberto Gilardino. Gilardino came on the scene with Italy in the 2004 Olympics, and after that became a fixture for the full national team. Soon following was a big money transfer to Milan, where he scored 19 goals in the run-up to the World Cup. He started the first four matches of the tournament, and he got a goal and an assist, but he did not really play later on in the tournament as Italy won the World Cup. Did not really have a tournament to remember. Over the course of his career, though, Joe Ardino did play for 11 different clubs in Italy and even made a short stop in China thrown in, I suppose, for variety. On our last show, much was made of Gord's fetish for English midfielders. His fetish didn't stop him from trading David Beckham for his 33-year-old Galactico teammate Zinedine Zidane, who was taken in this spot by Jeff. Now, I don't need to go deep into his club or international career, and I certainly don't need to talk about what happened with Zidane in this tournament, both for good and for infamy. And while the lasting image of Zidane's tournament and career is probably the headbutt to Matarazzi and the walk off the field, I do want to make sure you remember that one moment to think about in the final that everyone always seems to forget, or at least not remember until much later. And that is the penalty he scored in the first half. You're talking about the World Cup final. You're talking about uh, Buffon and Net, and he goes just with the chip right down the middle, the uh, you know, right off the crossbar and in, and just the balls it takes in that moment to take that shot, to score that goal. And again, it you know, we, we remember it, but it doesn't really get the same amount of attention as, of course, what he would do later in the game. So that is Zidane. The next pick was a midfielder who didn't quite reach Zidane's heights in this tournament. Jordan took Argentina captain Juan Pablo Soren. Now, Soren didn't know it at the time, but he was actually pretty much winding up his club career. He was about to move to Hamburg in Germany, but that, that one went uh, sideways pretty quickly. Um, didn't really go anywhere from there. Now, in this tournament, Soren, who, again, has played as both a midfielder and a defender, ended up playing outside back, which means his fantasy performance was pretty forgettable. Didn't really do anything offensively, even though he didn't play poorly. Of course, we will always remember him for those luscious locks that we will that just will live on in infamy. After Argentina's elimination from the tournament, Soren never featured for his country again. Moving along, Stroh took Brazilian midfielder Zé Roberto, who had a fascinating career arc that took him from Brazil to Spain, back to Brazil, then Germany, then back to Brazil, then back to Germany, then to Qatar, then actually back to Brazil again. He played for Brazil in the 98 and 2006 World Cup, 
didn't play in 2002 due to injury, so he never got that World Cup winner's medal. Uh, he was great in this tournament, actually. He played really well as a holding midfielder, and he actually did score a goal against Ghana in the round of 16 after a really nice run up the park. Um, the World Cup was the last time he did play for Brazil, but he actually played in his club career until 2017 when the last game he played was at age 43. Next up, I took uh, Spaniard Jose Antonio Reyes. Uh, this young gun, young gun was in the process of trying to move to Real Madrid from Arsenal, but it was really not enough for him to get on the field for Spain as he only appeared in one match. Reyes, of course, is one in a long line of Spanish players who had incredible talent, but he was lost in the wave of, the ta- of talent that the country produced at, its, you know, at this time period. After the tournament, Reyes would go on to play for some great European clubs. He played for both Madrid side, Benfica, Sevilla, and Espanyol. But his international career turned to be turned out to be done at the age of 22. He only played for Spain 21 times. Of course, he was beat out down the line by Fabregas, Xavi, Xavi Alonso, uh, Iniesta, etc., etc. Really never saw the field. He was actually still playing in the Spanish second division at the end of the 2019 season, but sadly passed away in a car accident last June uh, while he was still an active player. Sad to say. Finishing up the round was Manny taking a much more heralded Spaniard, and this would be Cesc Fabregas, uh, Reyes' teammate at Arsenal. The teenager had just recently begun to feature for Spain, but faith was placed in him, and he saw the field in all four matches of the tournament. Of course, this was the beginning of a 10-year stretch where his name showed up on just about every roster for Spain, and he was a member of all three winning championship sides for Spain between 2008 and 2012. More importantly, he also started in Spain's 2009 Confederation Cup semifinal loss against the United States. Cess is the second player thus far drafted to actually still be a current player. Manny stayed in Iberia for the first pick of the seventh round, taking El Nino Fernando Torres. He came on the scene to lead Spain in goals in World Cup qualifying and proceeded to score three goals in the tournament, matching his compatriot David Villa's total. While he would go on to score in two World Cups for Spain, his real impact would come in the European Championships, where he scored in both the 2008 and 2012 finals and had the Golden Balls European Trophy named in his honor. The youth movement continued with the next selection as I took 22-year-old Robin Van Persie of the Netherlands. Established at Arsenal, this was his first shot at an international tournament. He played in all four matches and scored on a nice free kick against the Ivory Coast, but it would really be in future tournaments where he would really start to shine with the Orange. In his career, he would go on to score over 300 goals for club and country and holds the unusual distinction of having scored with his right foot, left foot, head, free kick, and penalty goal all in the World Cup, all five. Pretty cool. We don't know for sure if he's the only person to ever do that, but if he's not, he's certainly one of a very small group. Another Dutch player went off the board next as Raphael van der Vaart went to Stroud. He was in his first stint at Hamburg, and after a 2004 Euros where he played a bit part, 2006 was supposed to be his time to shine. However, injury issues prevented him from making a big impact, and he didn't really see the field much in Germany. Despite all his club successes and his 109 national team caps, his career was marred by a bit of bad luck 
in tur big tournaments and really no impact in those events. The last match he played was in 2019 in the Dutch ninth tier, where he played for the reserve team of Esberg IB. Jordan went slightly, shall we say, off the board with his next pick when he took the first Portuguese outfield player, but maybe not the one you might expect. Not Samal Sabrosa, not Deco, not Figo, and not Cristiano Ronaldo, rather Pauletta, the veteran of this team. 33-year-old striker was a mainstay at the pre-chic version of PSG, and at the time was actually the highest scoring player for Portugal in history. He had led all European World Cup qualifying in goals in the run-up to the tournament and did score in the opening match against Angola. Unlike just about every player we've talked about before him, Pauletta never really played at an elite, elite level club. Again, PSG is not at the level it, uh, it is now back at the time. Uh, his 10-year run, uh, run career, the highest level, was spent at Deportivo La Coruña, Bordeaux, and as I mentioned, PSG. Bizarrely, the only time he actually ever won a league title was in 1999-2000 when he did so with Deportivo in Spain. The fifth pick of the seventh round was Jeff taking the future Golden Boot winner of the tournament. Despite scoring five goals, all with his head at the 2002 World Cup, Marisov Kosa wasn't at the top of the drafting charts in this tournament. He made everyone pay for that oversight with another five goals at the World Cup in his home country. Then he scored four more in 2010 and another two in 2014. Probably would have scored a couple if he played in 2018, despite already being retired. He's also considered to be one of the most sporting players in recent memory, with several instances of putting fair play above all else, including his team winning. Not, a bad, not bad from a guy who's actually not even German. For the second consecutive round, Gord went with an Italian attacker, taking Alessandro Del Piero to close out round number seven. The 31-year-old wasn't first choice going into the tournament, but he still played in several matches and scored the insurance goal in the semifinals against Germany. Del Piero was actually a goalkeeper in childhood, but his brother convinced his mother that he had the skill to play up top, ended up turning him into an attacker, and of course that turned out to be a very good decision. After an early rise at Padova, Del Piero played at Juventus for nearly two decades, played over 700 times for the club, and pretty much rewrote their offensive record book. He did finish his career in Australia, then India, before retiring actually all the way in 2014. Gord continued to build his attacking lineup to start round eight, and he took a legend, Ukraine's Andrei Shevchenko. His legendary time at Milan coming to a close, Chevchenko was Chelsea-bound after the tournament, but before that, he decided to drag his side all the way to the World Cup quarterfinals. He scored twice in the group stage, including the penalty winner in the group decider against Tunisia. His side was eventually eliminated by the future champs, but they had done themselves proud. Chevchenko was a top-eight fantasy attacker at the tournament, more than justifying his draft value here. He actually now manages Ukraine's national side and in theory will lead the club into Euro 2020 whenever that tournament decides to occur. Jordan was the next to take a striker from a second tier country, you could say, taking Mexican Harry Borghetti. Borghetti had a mostly anonymous club career on the world stage, doing most of his damage between 1996 and 2004 for Santos Laguna, but he had finished his one season in Europe before the tournament, having a fairly mediocre season at Bolton Wanderers, back when that was still a thing. 
Of course, for the national team, it was a different beast. He scored 46 times in 90 caps for Mexico, and had actually scored a really nice goal in the 2002 World Cup. Germany was a different matter entirely. He had two, only two shots on target in the entire tournament, as Mexico struggled, struggled in the group stage and went home in the round of 16. He's best known in the U.S. for an incident with Aguchi Onyewu in 2005 uh, World Cup qualifying. Borghetti stepped up to Onyewu, who responded with a stare down that lives on in U.S. lore. Borghetti backed down, and the U.S. won dos a cero. It's been established for years that Stroh loved drafting a good holding midfielder, and that stereotype might have gotten its start here when he drafted Patrick Vieira from France. Vieira's bona fides are clear. Over 400 matches for Milan, Arsenal, Juventus, Inter, and Man City. 107 caps for France. World Cup winner, European uh, Euros winner, Premier League winner, Serie A winner. However, he was not a sexy fantasy pick, having scored only four international goals coming into the tournament. Well, he scored two goals and added two more assists in the tournament, helped lead France to the final, and ended up being a top five fantasy midfielder. Now, you must be thinking this was great for Stroh getting a guy like this in the eighth round. An unexpected boon to a midfield that struggled otherwise on his t- uh, for his team. There's only two problems with this. The first is that Stroh only came in fourth despite how great Vieira played. The second problem, and probably the bigger one, is that Stroh has been chasing that defensive midfielder high now for 15 years, and he's never gotten this high again. But he will always have the summer of 2006. I went next, and I decided that the ideal pick would be to find the tallest, gangly-ass motherfucker in the draft, so I took Peter Crouch. The Stork had just finished his first season at Liverpool, an uneven campaign, but he was expected to get some run for England in the World Cup, with Wayne Rooney struggling to get healthy. He was battling a foot injury. He did score against Trinidad and Tobago, although committing flagrant assault on Brent Sancho and his hair as he headed the ball past Shaka Hislop. More offensive was him not doing the robot after he scored. Crouch went on to play over 600 matches for club and country and retired in 2019. It should be noted that I traded Crouchy before the tournament for an attacker that's probably the polar opposite. We'll hear more about him later on. To close out the eighth round, Manny did something quite odd and drafted England's Joe Cole. Now, there's nothing inherently weird about taking a starter from Chelsea. He was pegged to start on the left for England during the tournament. And Cole did respond with a worldie of a goal and an assist against Sweden in the group stage. What makes this pick a bit off is the idea of Manny drafting an English player. He knows nothing about English football, doesn't watch the Premier League, doesn't rate the national team, and by the way, has never played another English player again in Golden Ball's history. 2006 made us do some weird things. Manny stayed in midfield for round nine, and at least picked a guy from a country he was more familiar with, Claude Makaleli of France. While we previously mentioned Patrick Vieira's exploits, Makaleli stayed firmly at home during the tournament, as he was crucial to France's success, but he was a fantasy wasteland, no stats with which to speak of. Now, we could spend hours discussing Claude's club and international career and how vital he was to so many quality sides, how he redefined the a position in soccer in the 2000s, but that's been done before many times. There is an interesting story, though, about Makaleli that is often not talked about. That is, he tried to retire from the national team after this tournament, 
but coach Raymond Domenech refused to honor it and started calling him up for Euro 2000 qualifiers anyway. This caused a fight between Domenech and Jose Mourinho, McAuley's club manager. McAuley did end up reluctantly honoring the call-up and actually ended up playing for France all the way through Euro 2008 before actually retiring from the national team. The next couple picks some of us would prefer to skip, but alas, we must go on. Yep, I took Landy Cakes in this spot. Now, I will say the following in my defense. Donovan was the best young player at the 2002 World Cup, scored three goals. Despite being only 24 years old, he had already amassed 81 caps for the U.S. In 2010, he would lead the team again, scoring twice and being one of the best players on the team. Also going to the 2006 World Cup, the U.S. was considered a potential dark horse candidate after their 2002 run to the quarterfinals. Well, the life of a U.S. fan is akin to that of Icarus. We fly a little bit too close to the sun, and that's what happened in 2006. We got really excited just to be let down in the most devastating way. The U.S. got bounced early. Donovan played horribly, and quite honestly, he was never truly loved by the American fan base again. Afraid of an impending apparent rush on Americans, I suppose, Stroh stepped in and took Brian McBride. Now, everything I said about Donovan above would apply here about the U.S., except for the part about the fan base actually loves McBride still. And McBride also had a legit career in Europe, becoming so beloved at Fulham over his tenure that they named the sports bar at Craven Cottage after him. Also, his tournament was somewhat hampered after Daniel De Rossi obliterated his face with an elbow. Um, could have contributed to McBride not having quite as good a tournament. This tournament ended McBride's stellar international career, and honestly, many American fans still pine for another player like him for the national team. Now, Jordan could have chosen to make it three straight Americans here, but probably decided to make a better decision and take a little bit more of a renowned player. That's Freddie Lundberg of Sweden. A mainstay at Arsenal had a big role in the Invincible season just a couple years before. However, he also got hurt a lot once was actually treated for blood poisoning from having a number of large tattoos. Before this tournament, it was an ankle that troubled him, and he labored throughout the tournament. Despite that, he still scored a dramatic 89th-minute winner against Paraguay that ended up helping Sweden into the knockout round. Before moving on, let's just take a second to think about that Sweden 9-10 jersey combo in this tournament of Lundberg, Ibrahimovic, and Larsson. It's good times for Sweden. For the second time in the tournament, Jeff would take an Argentine youth, grabbing a 22-year-old Carlos Tevez, who was actually still playing in Brazil at the time, though not exactly playing in Brazil at the time, because he was about to kind of go to West Ham. We'll talk about that in a second. Despite getting mostly mop-up duty in Germany, Tevez, Tevez did have a goal and an assist. Before that wild transfer saga dealing with West Ham. And then a year later, an arguably even crazier saga involving Manchester United and almost the court for arbitration for sport. Safe to say, we have a player whose club career could get a documentary treatment. His last involvement with the national team occurred in 2015, and he is still playing professionally in his home country. Gord's final pick was a player that he would later trade for the aforementioned Peter Crouch a grown-ass man from the United States. As mentioned previously, anything U.S. in this tournament turned out to be toxic, and Eddie Johnson was no different. 
Johnson had lit it up in World Cup qualifying, and us American Icaruses were thinking he could compliment McBride in Germany. Nope, not even a little bit. No points, no goals, assists, shots, nothing, nada. Didn't really play very much. His last significant contribution to the national team would actually come in 2013, when he scored the goal that clinched U.S. qualification to the 2014 World Cup. Jordan went off the board for his last pick, taking midfielder Lucho Gonzalez of Argentina. Now, I got to be honest, this is the only player taken that even today I legit don't know. So let's learn a little bit. He was playing at Porto at the time, where he had a good spell before moving to Marseille in 2009. He did feature 45 times for his country. He didn't put up any stats in this tournament, but some of that is down to injury. After coming off the bench in the first match, he got injured 15 minutes into the second match against Serbia and Montenegro. Argentina went on to win that match 6-0, and it's quite possible that Gonzalez could have put some numbers up if he remained healthy. He sat out until the quarterfinal where he played against Germany, but was unable to get on the score sheet. Amazingly, he's actually still active, plying his craft in Brazil at age 39. Stroh went young with his last pick, taking an up-and-coming Barcelona midfielder named Andres Iniesta. Obviously, we all know what was to come. But at the time, he was a surprise inclusion on Spain's World Cup team. He was capped for the first time merely weeks before the tournament started. He did get a chance to start the final group stage against the Saudis, who was Spain already through and resting many of their starters. Didn't really contribute any stats at that time. And of course, we know what he would do for Spain pretty much up through the 2018 World Cup. This does seem as good a place as any to mention that despite the small rosters we had at our disposal, people did draft players who scored the World Cup winning goals in 1998, 2002, and 2010. Of course, nobody drafted the 2006 uh, World Cup winning goal scorer, what with penalties and all. My last pick was a guy that probably wasn't really on many other draft boards as I went down under for the Socceroos and Liverpool's Harry Kuehl a.k.a. not Tim Cahill. This is important since I probably would have been slightly better off taking Timmy. Either way, Kuehl was expected to be a big presence for the Aussies despite battling a groin injury. He started two matches and actually scored the goal that ended up sending Australia into the knockout round. However, he missed that match against Italy with what was a suspected case of the gout, which is probably the first in the long line of some pretty odd injuries my players have decided to accrue over the years. The next pick was Mr. Irrelevant as far as the main draft went, but ironically enough, this player ended up being quite relevant to the tournament. Manny took David Trezeguet of France. The Juventus star was a French mainstay, part of the group that won the World Cup in 98 and the Euros two years later, in which Trezeguet scored the goldenest of golden goals to win the tournament. 2006, though, didn't go as well for him, as Domenech preferred a one-striker formation, and while Trezeguet was class, he wasn't Thierry Henry. He did come on as a sub in many matches, including the final, but that's a match he may wish he stayed on the bench because he was the only player to miss in the penalty shootout, which is about as good a place as any to wrap up our draft review. Wow, talk about a trip down memory lane. But before we depart, there are a couple other things worth taking a look at. First, we'll list some guys who had great tournaments that went undrafted. In the midfield, we had some pretty strong performances from German Bastian Schweinsteiger. 
It's amazing to hear that a German that succeeded, Jeff Lett, get away. Maxi Rodriguez of Argentina also had a really good tournament. He of the wonder goal to beat Mexico. Manish had a strong tournament for Portugal. And Maxim Kalinichenko of Ukraine, Tim Cahill of Australia, and Thomas Rosicki of the Czechs all were top 10 midfielders. Up top, we did better. As a group, we took all 10 of the uh, top 10 fantasy strikers. But I will give a tip of the cap to Alex Fry of Switzerland, Augustin Delgado of Ecuador, and some kid named Ronaldo from Portugal, who all just missed out on being top 10 forwards. For that goalie defender hybrid position that we used, the Swiss actually finished third in points, seeing as they didn't concede a single goal during the tournament. Credit also has to go to Gord for winning the tournament, despite having the U.S. goalies who finished worse in the tournament. So, without a waiver wire and only a pair of trades, what you heard above is more or less what we had to work with, except for the crucial role that goalies played in determining our winner. With a rather rudimentary scoring system, mistakes were made. Manny actually finished last, despite having France as one of his two goalies. Only four of his 10 field players reached double digits. And outside of his Torres and Villa Spanish duo, his production across the board was pretty abhorrent. Jordan finished fifth with some decent goalie play from Portugal and Argentina. However, he didn't really have one field player go off despite earning Crespo's three goals. Stroh came in fourth with England and Germany goalies accounting for over half of his points. Vieira and Ronaldo excelled, but beyond that, it really didn't go that well for him. Jeff came in third with a very even attack. All of his eight uh, players actually reached double-digit points. And of course, Kloso's five goals were huge. However, he didn't take the goalie uh, positions very seriously. He waited until the eighth and the... Um, 10th round to take his two goalie uh, defenders, he took the Czech Republic and he took Mexico. Those two only got him 48 points combined. If he had taken a better goalie here, if he had taken a goalie earlier and gotten a legitimate performance, he very well might have won the original tournament. I finished runners-up pretty much due to Brazil's 95 points. Um, my, fo- my forwards and midfielders didn't really do all that great. Thierry had a great tournament. Other than that, didn't go very well. And then we have our winner, Gord. Now, Gord had Italy's goalies and defenders who got four goals and five clean sheets in the tournament. Obviously huge. But he also had a very solid group of midfielders and had some goals scored from his guys up top as well. Not surprisingly, he won by almost 50 points as a result. That wraps it up for the 2006 Golden Balls draft. But I am going to post one more show about 2006. That's a bit of a surprise as we continue on in quarantine, kind of looking back at the past. This one's going to be not 100% Golden Balls related, a little bit, a tangential one. And I think that you guys will really enjoy it. So please do come back for the next episode of the Golden Balls podcast. Adios.